All right, friends, if you want to make your way back to your chairs, that would be great. If you want to make your way back to your chairs, that would be great. Hey, you're going to want to grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Romans chapter 10. That's in the back third of your Bibles. If you don't have your Bible, the best place you're going to want to go is to the Bible app. The easiest way to get there is go to connect the number two Riverside on your phone and then just scroll to the bottom and uh, you'll see a little page that says Bible app. Click Click that because you're going to want to follow along this morning. It's going to be really important. And so Romans chapter 10 is the flip side of the coin from Romans chapter 9. So last week it was really fun to welcome Scott back here. He he did a beautiful job. Where Last week we talked about this picture of, of what does it mean to have salvation? What does it mean to become a follower of Jesus Christ? And uh, Scott walked out um, this picture of the sovereignty of God, of, of God's role in giving us the gift of salvation. And Romans chapter 9 has often been considered a very, very difficult text for us when it comes to understanding the role that God plays in the gift of salvation. We said last week, kind of at surface level, it feels like that God is choosing some people and he's picking other people and he's not choosing some. Like God has, the word that we talked about was predestined some or chosen some and he has not chosen and others. And upon like just digging one layer down into the scripture, we discovered obviously that is not God's heart for us. Second Peter says it is God's will that all would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so chapter not 10 is the flip side of that. If God has extended us the gift of salvation, chapter 10 then is how do we really begin to to, um, to receive that, that gift of salvation or free will. So it seems like there is this paradox in chapters 9, 10, and 11 where you have the sovereignty of God intersect with our ability to choose. And that is where the tension of predestination has traditionally come up. And so it's actually something that has divided the Christian church for a a long time. And so a couple of things, if you missed last week, go back and watch it. But I just want to kind of frame it so you know where we're going to be this morning. So Romans chapter 9 obviously comes after chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, which is is a picture to us that sometimes whenever we talk about this understanding or this paradox of God's sovereignty and our choice, we tend to stick it at chapter 1 as if it should take center stage. And Paul is tucking it back into chapter 9 to say, listen, y'all need to settle down. It's When it comes to the gift of salvation, there is this mystery that, that happens with the gift that God has given us. In fact, Deuteronomy, I found this this last week. Look at Deuteronomy 29 says, says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of his law, meaning that there are secret things, mysteries about God that you and I will never come to understand. They are those things that will drive you nuts about about God. And then he has also given us revealed things, things that are clearly understandable for us to follow. And so oftentimes we focus and we argue on the mysterious things of 
God, the things that often leave us with a lot of questions, and it can actually keep us from taking steps in our relationship with Jesus. And I believe what Paul is arguing, what we're going to see this morning is, let's not get hung up on the the mysteries of God when simple obedience to the revealed things of God actually helps us carry down the road. And so if that still doesn't satisfy you when it comes to this idea of of God choosing some and our ability to choose him back, um, I like to say not predestination, but that you are pre-loved. Like before you did anything, you just need to know that God pre-loved you before you did even a thing. And so that's where we're going to be picking up in chapter 10 this morning. Let's go ahead and pray as we engage God's words together. God, we, bl- we bless you. We love you. God, we thank you that your word is alive, God, and that it is your active voice in this world. And so, God, we humbly put ourselves up under it, believing that you will speak to us this morning, that you have something in store for us. And so we open ourselves, expose our hearts to you this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, Romans chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. Today is going to feel, let's be real clear, probably a little bit more technical than we normally do, but it's going to be important for us to kind of engage in some of that because last week we talked about the sovereignty of God, God's choice over us, and this morning we're going to be looking at our response. And so chapter 10, verse 1, here we go. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for the Israelites is that they might be saved saved. And so Paul is talking about this genuine heartbreak, this genuine concern for the Jewish nation. That obviously includes all of those that do not know Jesus Christ. But for Paul, this is not some sort of academic pursuit or theological argument for Paul. This is a very personal issue for him. His heart is breaking for those that do not know Jesus Christ. That means the next question that I have to ask myself is, does that describe me too? What, what I see in the scripture is Paul's heart breaking for the Jewish nation, the people that do not know Christ. And the next thing I have to ask myself, does that describe me too? Does it break my heart that there are people that will not spend the next day experiencing the goodness of God? You know, this is my journal, and we've been doing some of this in our community for a long time, where we've been journaling our prayers and listening to God's voice. And this passage became super convicting to me this week as, as I was going back and I was flipping through my journal, and it's filled with prayers and what God, I think, believes about me. And you know what I was deeply convicted of? There's very little room for, for my prayers for people that don't know Jesus, That as I rode back through there, it seems like almost like I've taken center stage. That my heart is not breaking for the things that breaks God's hearts. I mean, friends, do you know where we live right now? Do you see the neighborhoods popping up all around you right now? Is our natural response what Paul says? God, my heart breaks for them. God, one day, God, would you use me in such a way that all people might come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because he's good and he's kind. I mean, I just have to ask, like, I wonder if that is not our natural response, have we really experienced how good he is? Have we really experienced how good and kind he is? And if, it, if we have, shouldn't the normal natural response is for everybody to get to experience that? 
that you and that God might use you to, to, to bless your neighbors, to reach your coworkers, to, to reach out to an extended family. Is, is it in front of you? Is it break your heart? Do your words match what Paul says? God, my heart breaks for those that do not know you. I read this week that history is silent about revivals that don't begin with prayer. There aren't any. No revival begins without God's people crying out to God on others' behalf. Like, could it be that maybe our hearts are not breaking, that our normal is that we're not seeing people come to the saving knowledge to enjoy the fellowship that Jesus offers because we're not throwing the seed? Because I believe that the harvest is based off of the seed that we throw. And I don't know about you, but I want my normal that every day, everywhere I go, that I am throwing the seeds. God, would your heart be known in this place? God, would you use me? Would it be such a new normal that everywhere this community goes, that Riverside is known for people that have never experienced Jesus, that they would find the loving tenderness of God in this place, that he would use us, that we echo the words of Paul, God, would you use me? Would you use me? My heart breaks for the things that break yours. I, listen, I grew up doing Young Life, and I could camp on this one point all morning long about this breaking our hearts for the things that break God's. And yet I want to show us, uh, I want us to move along in the scripture and show you what God's people, how they respond to the heartbreak of Paul. Let's look at verse two. Look at what it says. For I can testify that that the Jews, they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God, they sought to establish their own righteousness and did not submit to God's righteousness because Christ is the accumulation of the law so that their their righteousness might be for everyone who believes. And so Paul is saying the Jewish people, it's not that they were not passionate about God. It's not that they didn't lack zeal for the Lord. They had 613 Old Testament laws that the Jews would strictly to adhere to. And on top of that, they developed an oral tradition called um, the hedge about the law. Think of it as if there was a well, you would build this hedge around the well so that you would not fall in. And the Jews had all of these 613 laws. And they, then they had these hedge around all of the 613 laws just so that they could remain faithful. For example, they had a, 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 one of the laws that God gave them was keep the Sabbath. That's one law. The Jews had 39 um, traditions about how to keep the Sabbath. 39. 39 laws just on one law and how to be faithful to that. And Paul says that their zeal for God was not their problem. Their sincerity to the keeping the law could not save him. It did not establish the righteousness that God was talking about. And so I want to frame that for us this morning because it's a little confusing. Here's the picture of what's going on. There are good, faithful, very passionate, church-going people that love the scriptures, that are generous with their resources, that have missed the gospel completely. 
That's the, that's the picture that Paul is painting. There are these whole group of people that care about really good things, things you should care about, and they've missed the gospel of Jesus completely. Y'all, that's scary to me. That, that's really petrifying to me because that says that I can care about all the right things and my heart be disconnected to the source. That means, I, I love World Vision. We've been partnering with World Vision for the last many years. They're the number one provider of clean water in the world. That means that I can be passionate about World Vision. It's something beautiful, central to God's heart, and still miss the gospel completely. That means I can be passionate about underserved, the marginalized, undocumented people in our community, and still miss the gospel completely. I can care about all of these good, important things and still be disconnected to the righteousness that the gospel speaks of. Or you could say it this way. What Paul is talking about here this morning is those things are the result of a gospel-infused life. They are not the gospel in themselves. Good things are not the gospel. Jesus is the gospel, not the good things that he, uh, that, that is how his heart unfolds. And we've been talking about this specifically in chapters two and three. Because um, at the end of the day, as we've seen all through the book of Romans, that there are two approaches to following God. The first one says, I want to do all of these good, right, beautiful things because I think it will help me establish my own righteousness. We call that, or we spell that religion, is spelled this way, D. Oh, it's what you do that makes you righteous in God's sight. It's how you measure up. It's how you stack up that makes you pleasing and acceptable to God. And then there's this whole other approach, the gospel approach that says this righteousness that this righteousness comes from outside of you. It is given to you as a gift. And you don't spell it D-O, but you spell it D-O-N-E. It's not what you have done, it's what Christ has done on your behalf. If you convince yourself that you are made right because of the good behavior, because of the good, right things that you are doing, you're going to miss out on the blessing of what Christ has already done for you. And that was with a, that's the problem that Paul is addressing with the Jewish people is they were so zealous for doing the right things that they missed the gospel completely. And I believe that serves for us, honestly, is a staunch warning for us that we have to anchor our heart not into the good deeds, but into the, um, the one who is declared good and righteous. This is what separates every religion in the world. Every other religion in the world is not the same as Christianity. Don't let anybody tell you that is true. This whole understanding, this right here is the foundation for the Christian story. Every other religion says this, if you're faithful and you're good and you do it long enough and you're fervent enough, then that God is going to accept you. Christianity, is that's not even part of the equation. It operates on a different plane. The message of Jesus is not, uh, is not what you do that it makes you right before God, but what has been done on your behalf. We talk about it this way. Religion says, I obey, and therefore God accepts me. But the gospel declares, I am accepted, and therefore I obey. 
This is what separates the message of Jesus from every other world religion out there. It's foundational. Everything is not the same. All roads don't lead to the same place. It's not true. Look at verse 5. Let's see how Paul keeps the conversation going. Moses writes about this righteousness that is given by the law. The person who does these things by them will live. Now, Moses is given the law in Deuteronomy, and he comes down and he reads these, to, these 613 laws to the Jewish people. And he says, if you do these things, you will live. Now, if I came in here on Sunday morning and said, listen guys, all you got to do, all you got to do is obey these 613 laws, and if you do that, you will have life. Now, how many of you are going to feel real encouraged? <laughs> Nobody, right? The Jewish people know that. They knew there's no way. The laws had to point to a savior. That's why, did you know what? Notice in the Newer Testament, all throughout the Newer Testament, people are constantly bumping into Jesus and saying things like, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Because I can't keep them all. Just tell me the one. What is the one that I got to follow? And, and, and Jesus says, you know the greatest commandment. It's, it's the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. Let's keep going. Look at verse 6. But the righteousness that is given by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend up to heaven? Whoa, that almost fell. Who, who, do not, who will ascend up into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. But who will descend into the depth? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. So what is he talking about? The picture that Paul is laying out is, you don't have to have some sort of religious experience. You don't have to go on a quest to have some emotional high to, to achieve the righteousness that God is talking about. And the opposite is true. You don't have to go to the, to the depths of the hell in your life. You don't have to go to the, to the depths of your soul as to like figure all of that stuff out because that has already been done for you. Christ has come down and the, he has brought from the depth up for us. And so it is not about our zeal and our fervor for him, but it's about his zeal and fervor for us. This is a term that we've been talking about in here for a really, really long time. It's the term, go ahead, Jason. It's the term gift righteousness. That this righteousness that God offers us doesn't start with you. You're not that awesome. Like, like this gift of righteousness comes from outside of us. Uh, another term was alien righteousness, meaning that it is foreign to us and God gives it to us as a gift. I found this quote this week, and if you don't read old dead dudes like theologians, you're really missing out because they're awesome. Listen, listen to what Martin Luther said. The love of God does not find, but it creates that which is pleasing to it. What does that mean? Well, here's the picture. You and I work completely opposite. Um, we find things that are lovely, and then we love them. When I met Christy, it was like, oh boy, here we go, come on, you know. I've got to know her, and I see that she is lovely and beautiful, and then I chose to love her. I did not create what was lovely and beautiful about her. That already existed. I got to, I got to love what was already in place. This is important. 
please don't miss this. God works completely different. He doesn't look around and say, who is lovely and beautiful? And then I'm gonna love them. He's completely different. He does not look around and say, all right, who's righteous? Who toes the line? Who's got it all figured out? Who's got it, who's real nice and who's real pretty? And then I'm gonna love them. No, the love of God creates that inside of us. It is, he de, the love of God does not find, it creates what is lovely inside of us. He works on a whole different plane. Let's keep going. Look at verse eight. But what does it say? The word is near you. Those are really small up there, sorry. The word is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart concerning faith that we proclaim. Salvation is not some quest that you have to go on. You don't have to go out looking for salvation or this righteousness that was given to us. He says it's as close as your mouth and it's, it's in your heart. You don't have to show penance for six weeks. God, here I am. I'm standing firm and I'm going to be faithful, God. I just mean it a whole lot and then you're going to love me. He doesn't do that with us. It's as close as your mouth. It's right here. It's as close as your next heartbeat. Look at verse nine. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is written, your heart, uh, excuse me, for it is written with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith that you are saved. That is a funny little word that pops up in the book of Romans over and over again, that word justified. It's a word, listen, that every follower of Jesus needs to be clear and needs to know. This is, this is the equation. Justification is forgiveness plus righteousness. Most of us grew up with uh, a picture of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus as we are just forgiven people. That's it. Man, I am forgiven and one day I'm gonna go to heaven and I'm gonna get the fullness that God has intended for me. But justification takes it a step further than that. Christians are not just forgiven people. You need to know that. They're not just forgiven people. It's forgiveness, which was given to us on the cross, plus righteousness. What does righteousness mean? It means holy. It means blameless in God's sight. And when you have those, you have this forgiven person with this new identity of holy and blameless. And those come together and give us this picture of what does it mean to be justified, just as if I'd never sinned. I'm holy and blameless in God's sight. It's not that you go from something that needs a lot of improvement to doing much better. It goes from you are dead and Christ has resurrected you and brought you to life. That is the picture of justification that he offers us. Look at verse 11. Look at what it says. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Never be put to shame. I love the way the message says this. Look at what the, how the message translation says this. Scripture reassures us, no one who trusts like this with your heart and soul will ever regret it. This is Jesus's like money back guarantee. Whoever gives God their heart and their soul will never regret it. Why? Because you don't have to ever wonder where you stand. You, you don't have to wonder 
if you're lovable. You, you don't have to worry because your father knows how to give good gifts to you. He will provide. He will take care of you. You don't have to stress. You don't have to have anxiety. You don't because you know that there is a father that loves you. He's given you a new identity that it is no longer you who lives, but Christ lives inside of you, that you are filled with joy and hope. And as we sang this morning, the resurrected king is resurrecting me and you have resurrection power living inside of you. That means that knowing Jesus is better than anything. Like, thank you. Knowing Jesus is better than your circumstances. Knowing Jesus is better than your feelings. Knowing Jesus is just better than anything. Fill in the blank with whatever it is. No one who trusts him, heart and soul like this, will ever re regret it. This message of the gospel, y'all, creates the most inclusive community that the world has ever seen. Why? Because it ain't about you. It's not about you. It's about him and his goodness. I, that, oh, okay, so here it is. <laughs> Let, okay, let's keep going. Let's read verse 12 real quick and then I'm gonna get to it. Go to the next verse. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on the name of the Lord. Next verse. For there is, oh, a little bit more. Is, there any, is that it? Okay, so I'm going to read it to you. Everyone who calls on the name will be saved. That means this community, this way of love, this way of righteousness that God gives to us, that way, that means we have, everybody has access. Every single person. All means all. Black, white, Hispanic, rich, poor, straight, gay, American, African, does not matter. matter. Everybody who calls on the name will be saved because the gospel teaches us that the acceptance of Jesus Christ is not based on your goodness. It is based on the goodness of God. And tell me one person on the planet earth that God will not love. Show that person to me. Show that person to me because God's heart is on every single one of us. And what made this message so scandalous in the first century is not that the gospel excluded people. It actually was radically inclusive. Um, the Talmud is... Uh, um, some of the Jewish tradition of the Older Testament scriptures. And the Talmud would teach the, Jesus, uh, the Jewish rabbis this prayer. Just hold on. And this, they would teach them this prayer. It said this. A rabbi would wake up in the morning and say, God, thank you that I am not like a woman, that I'm not like the Gentile, and that I am not like a slave. Thank you that you have not made me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. That was the tradition in the Jewish culture. That's what was written in the Talmud. Now, if you know the scriptures in Acts chapter 16, Paul is preaching the gospel for the very first time, breaking new ground in places it's never been before. And do you know who some of the first converts are and the first wave of Christians? Okay, here we go. You have a Jewish woman named Lydia, whoa, a slave girl, and the Gentile jailer. You tell me God's not hilarious 
You tell me that. You tell me that this narrow view of, oh man, this is, oh, it's real time. God's heart is set on the nations. The nations. I may get into trouble, but here it goes. If your idea of heaven is rich, white, English-speaking Americans, you're gonna be sorely disappointed. Because every time we pray, we pray to a brown-skinned, Middle Eastern refugee. You gotta deal with that, folks. You gotta deal with that. This is the most, inc- do you know where the gospel is spreading the quickest? In Latin America and in Africa. Just waves going everywhere. Why? Because God wants everybody. There is not somebody in the world that God will not love. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But you don't know what I've done, John. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I wake up every morning and I'm, sorry, I'm pissed. I'm hurt. Do you not know what life has done to me? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I've ruined my kids. I mean, I've ruined my marriage. I've ruined my life. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I've turned my back on him time and time and time again. How could he ever welcome me back? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. One final thought as we wrap it up this morning. In this passage and kind of all through the book of Romans, this passage emphasizes that we have a word-based um, uh, a gospel. Um, meaning that words are powerful. The scripture says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Genesis, how did God choose to create the world? He spoke it into existence. When Jesus was doing ministry, how did he heal people? Did he just wave his hand and thousands of people just fall down? No, he said, get up, pick up your mat and go home. There is power when you align yourself with the declarations of what God has said about you. There is power in your words. Even even after you're a follower of Jesus, when you align yourself with the words of God, not bending towards your emotions, not bending towards like all of the pressure that you're experiencing, but when you align yourselves with the reality, man, you're just deeply loved. (laughs) You got nothing to prove. You don't have to measure up. You can't do all of the right things necessary for God to love you. It's not about you and your righteousness and your zeal for him. It's D-O-N-E. It's what Christ has done on your behalf. There's power there. It releases the ability for transformation.